Hi, I'm Jake Morkham. I'm Nina Kobel. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today, we'll look at how is big data helping us understand changes in the environment. And how much energy does it take to treat human waste? But first... Uh, I was working in a salon in Amsterdam and uh, she... uh, How shall I explain this? I got to cut a giant. A what? Like a, a, a physical giant, like in a movie or something? Yeah. So she came under the door. You know, if you ever got a client that comes under the door and then came through and I was like, oh my God, you are huge. Like, this was really, it was, it was a giant. This is Paul Frasca from Sustainable Salons Australia. And she had this very deep voice and uh, it, it was very funny. And I said, hello. And she was like, you know, hello. And, and I was like, <laughs> with trying to do the voice, but she, uh, she came and I said, uh, she would like a haircut. And I said, well, great. And I remember the first thing that happened is that uh, I said, well, come and have a seat so we could have a consultation. But she couldn't sit in the chair. Mm. So she actually had to sit on the floor. And just sitting on the floor of the salon uh, was already at head height for me to cut. From that, I had to walk her to the basin to wash her hair. And that was another thing. She couldn't fit in the basin. So she, her neck was too large. Her, her head was too big. And, but what was amazing from there is for the next four years, she was my client. You know, and I got to get to know her so well. And she was such an amazing person, so intelligent. And I just, you know, we just had a great uh, hairdressing life together for those four years. Think of the last time you went to the hairdressers. Maybe you got a colour, maybe you got a cut. How much of your hair ended up on the floor in a big, gross blob? And when you think about it, where is that hair going? The bin. And after the bin, into landfill. Paul from Sustainable Salons says, by sweeping away this hair and just chucking it out, we're missing out on the massive potential of hair as a sustainable resource. And when it comes to the way we think about hair, we're not using our heads. Australians cut off <laughs> 400,000 kilos of hair each year. Like uh, how much of that goes to landfill? All of it. You only have to go back in the history books to find out that uh, in America, the Indians were actually using hair within the clay when they were building their homes. Now, that was acting as like an insulant. So think about putting hair in the cavity of your home You know, it will be like wrapping your home in a mint coat. So if we put hair inside the clay, for example, inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. You know, you won't even have to think about it. You probably won't have to see it, but it'll be acting like an an organic insulator with inside your home. So you could even do that within clothes. You know, we've got stories now about using hair to clean up oil spills. And you're using something or a a kind of technology that you've devised (laughs) is... I guess in your words, something called the hair sausage. Yeah, or, the or, hair or a, boom. A hair boom, but it, it kind of looks like a sausage. <laughs> it is a sausage, yeah, it is, isn't it? I think, look, I even brought one to show you. I can't wait. I want, so I'm going to get it out of my yeah. sneaky little bag. It's kind of like, it's a stocking, right? There it is. 
Today we're actually using a plumbing sock, which is actually much better to be using for this. But uh, basically it's hair like a big sausage. This boom, which is a metre long, can soak up four litres of oil and can squeeze out three litres of that back into a drum. Where the future of this will go is when an oil spill does occur is that instead of deploying synthetic booms, which don't absorb as well and actually probably don't, they don't actually work as well, which we're finding is that we can actually get hair booms out there absorbing the oil and then reclaiming the oil back and potentially using them up to two to three times uh, at a go. So they're not having to be just thrown away straight away, that they can actually be used again and again. Have they yet been used? or? or oh, how? yeah. One of the biggest displays of uh, the hair booms being used was actually during the BP oil spill in America. Now, when that spill actually happened, uh, a, a group called the Matter of Trust in America, which is kind of like our planet Ark, let's say, said we're going to, you know, really take full force and get out there and actually deploy these hair booms and show what they can actually do. Over a million kilos of hair was collected for that spill. Uh, they even had the military sandbagging them, you know, as, as a way of trying to imagine this is they'll, everyone was now packing hair and having, well, first of all, having the hair cut off from the salons, sent to their depot where they could then start packing the booms and getting them uh, dispatched out to all the sites and, uh, and people were using them. This actually brings us to what it is that you're doing with sustainable salons at the same time by collecting hair mm. from different salons. So basically, we've got bins inside a salon that all the hairdressers are now separating their metals, their hair, their plastic, their paper, their razor blades, even chemical waste. And uh, as they get separated every two weeks, our fleet of drivers go out to then pick up that waste. It comes back to depot. And then each waste product has, let's say, kind of like a different story, we could say. And uh, hair is one of those bins. So when the hair does come in, 80% of that hair is kept aside for hair booms. Another 15% is uh, kept for local community growing groups for composting. So that's another use for hair. What about down the drain? Oh, look, hair, little bits of hair would end up through down the drain, but in a hair salon, it's all going on the floor and then just ending up in the bag. But yeah, that you're talking about home, washing your hair. Oh, there must be tons, yeah. What about certain chemicals that are going down the drain and into water supply? I mentioned different kind of hair products in terms of shampoos and conditioners, but something else that you brought up was even chemicals and things like peroxide. Oh. Look, yeah, it's really funny. The hairdressing industry is just one of those industries that's been around a long time, right? We've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, over the last 50 years, uh, you could say colouring has been a big thing in the hair salon. So that's introduced this whole range of chemicals that have had to be introduced to the salon. Now, we use some of the harshest chemicals on the planet, like uh, hydrogen peroxide. You know, uh, not ha many hairdressers have probably ever realised, but they've literally got a bomb coming into their salon, <laughs> you know, every day. Uh, and it needs to be used in the right way. Uh, and it does amazing things for our vanity, though. Like, you know, it gives you the highlights. It, it lifts hair and gives those beautiful colours. But uh, at the same rate, yeah, once it's been applied to the hair, it's only just been washed down the drain, you know, and... Uh, it, even the leftover colour in the bowls that hairdressers have all the time, it's just been washed down the drain. Part of our program, so any sustainable salon now has a chemical bucket. Uh, it's a 20 litre bucket and every time they have excess colour wastage, they can put that inside the bucket. And they're also now taught when the client's sitting down getting their hair washed to actually start to squeeze it off. They can squeeze off around about 25% uh, of that colour and just put it in the, in a, in the bucket. Uh, those buckets are then collected fortnightly and uh, we work with a chemical recycler who actually just turns it all back into water. 
Now, see, what the funny thing is, is colour, and I keep reminding hairdressers, like your peroxide bottle is 98% water. What these guys are doing at the chemical recyclers is not rocket science. They're just using solvents to extract the chemicals and uh, basically separate the, the chemical side of it and then collect the water, and they actually resell it back into the government programs. I find it funny because when it's on our head... Or when it's on our body, it's so commonly related to beauty. But once it's off, it's disgusting and you want to get rid of it. So true, right? Like you touch some, you know, your partner's hair, you put your fingers through the hair. It's, it's amazing. Yet if you see it just a second later, like on side, the, that same hair that you're touching, which feels so amazing next to you, you, you just feel it's so gross. Like if it's near your food, you're going to puke. If, you, if, it's, if it's on their shoulder, you're like, oh, get it off. You know, it's got all these weird things. It's just one of those bizarre things which I want to start to break that, you know, because then uh, we can start to enjoy it rather than hate it. Paul Frasca from Sustainable Salons Australia. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. What's something in your everyday life that you would like to track? I once considered tracking my coffee intake and then monitoring Mm. how that affects me during the day, like if I have a better day or how I feel, because I have a theory that it's probably not positive and that the illusion I have of it giving me an upbeat sort of energy burst is probably just an illusion. How would you do that? Like, what would you, would you attach it to your coffee mug and the <laughs> amount of hand interactions every day with that mug? Well, see, this is, the, this is exactly the reason I haven't done it, because I imagine myself with a piece of paper tallying things yeah. and writing detailed notes. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem like a very practical a practical way of going about things. Well, a practical example that is actually happening here in the Sydney city at the moment is it's a tech collaboration between a company called Meshed and the University of Technology Sydney. And essentially they've launched something called an IoT network, which allows individuals to put chips on little things to monitor trends. And the biggest outcome that they're hoping to come from this is to monitor environmental trends and changes in our cities. Here's Catherine McManus, who's from Meshed, and she's kind of at the helm of um, this collaboration. And one thing that really excites her about this tracking chip technology is how it's being used on hair dryers. I am an avid hair dryer user and have been all my life. And a lot of my hair dryers have just uh, packed it in because they've got too hot. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of whether or not the hair dryer is getting too hot. Um, and a little sensor which is saying, hey, Kath, it's just about to tip over the edge. Um, you know, obviously you, you buy a good quality hairdryer, that doesn't happen, but sometimes, you know, who knows? There could be an extra voltage that goes through the hairdryer which causes it to trick. So this is where I think um, in the appliance area uh, it, it certainly does make sense. In the manufacturing space, uh, what's really interesting is that there is now wearables so wearable devices that are based on the Internet of Things where um, someone in, a, in an assembly environment where they're having to pull together something, uh, they can put on a smart glove. And the smart glove actually helps them to guide the process in terms of exactly what part they pick up um, you know, in, in sequence. But it also does things like uh, it's checking for strain um, and it's being used to actually reduce injury. So, mm. so this is a really interesting area. The whole wearables area um, is fascinating. 
in the mining resources sector, a lot of the um, sensors, um, they, you can put a, a sensor inside a hard hat. And, and the, the sensor then is collecting uh, data, for example, on the quality of the air. Uh, and then wow. is able to send a signal absolutely to to the um, you know the miners that hey there's you know you you might want to move on or or get up um, because you know the the oxygen levels or, or something are low so there are some really really sensible smart ways in which smart sensors and the Internet of Things can be used um, for improvement of health and and also just making work environments safer. What if people don't want this data collected on them? Well, the data's not been collected on them um, necessarily, and and this is where marketers around the world, you know, have this this notion of opt in, so you can opt in to participate. Um, but look, there is definitely I'm not going to at all um, put under the carpet that there are very legitimate concerns about the Internet of Things, and um, this is a space that we need to navigate very carefully. I'm actually more worried about drones, to be honest. Um, and uh, you know, why? Well, because um, not that I'm personally worried about drones, but I think that the discussion around um, robotics and automation and drones is a very valid conversation. I suppose for me, just personally, what I would really hope to avoid uh, in our city is to have, you know, thousands of drones that are just droning, you know, across our city. They're noisy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I live opposite a park and, uh, you know, a fairly large park in, um, in northern Sydney. And, you know, on Sundays, it's just a wash with people with drones. And, and Because there's different drone users, you know, you might have the farmers who are using them to kind of scour the agricultural land. I really like the farmer example because that is real. You know, that's actually happening. What's um, really cool is, have you heard of Little Ripper? The, uh, so Little Ripper is a drone um, that is now being deployed in Bondi Beach. Um, some wonderful engineers, I think they may have been retired engineers or, or whatever, they came up with this great idea, which was to get a little craft. It, it looks like a, a, a tiny little helicopter mm. uh, but what it's actually doing is it's um it's scanning uh the coastal environment for sharks and also for debris that's um floating in water so it's been an amazing tool for people like the surf life saving association they've endorsed this and i that's a really good example all happening right here in our city so just to talk a bit more specifically about how the IoT network functions, and if we just use the farmer as an example, if the farmer wants to monitor something and has a IoT chip embedded somewhere, does it essentially work that that chip will register different things happening around and then feed that back to the farmer? That's exactly what it looks like. So think of a, a farm where there is a crop on the farm and again they might have a couple of what we call smart sensors they could be little boxes or tiny little monitoring instruments and that monitoring instrument is then sending a signal using in our instance with the work we're doing with UTS using actually the 915 megahertz radio spectrum to communicate from that little instrument to the internet so the farmer can then look at his website or look at his iPad and see exactly what's going on with the, it could be a water channel for his irrigation, it could be a pump uh, for his water pumps uh, and he can see that information in real time about how that particular thing that he's monitoring or asset that he's monitoring is is performing. So monitoring is one side of it. How about just smartening up some of the other things 
around us. Yeah, well, look, um, you know, to smarten things up around us, we've actually got to know what we're trying to smarten. It's more about, well, what's this data telling us? One project that we're about to kickstart is to actually build a fitness tracker for the city. So think of a Fitbit, Mm. you know, for a personal fitness. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could get a whole heap of data about how the city's performing from a fitness perspective? So we can monitor things like um, fine particle pollution, Uh, We can check on traffic congestion, noise levels. Uh, We can even track what has been termed now as the urban heat island effect. And that's that's due to rising temperatures in cities because of uh, tree canopy loss and just, um, you know, the whole activity around cities. Because if we can actually monitor um, how well the city is performing, for example, on environmental quality and amenity, then that has immediate flow on effects to the fitness of people and the health of people and the well-being of people. If we're looking at something like the urban heat island effect, for, for something like an IoT chip to work, where would you put them? They could pretty much go anywhere. We can get enthusiasts who are interested about the environment to, to put it, for example, they could put it on the balcony of their house. Um, you know, we could put it on a public building. We could put it in the middle of a, on the top of a light pole in a public park. Um, and, and then once we have these devices that could be tracking really simple things like temperature, humidity, ozone levels, just start with that. We could also have, have other devices that are checking vibrations, uh, for example, for noise. Then, you know, with all of those um, sensors out there in the city and, and people hopefully crowdfunding themselves and, and, and getting that information out there, then we can build an, an overall picture and share that data. So when people use the community network, they're also potentially improving Sydney's, you know, amenity. Catherine McManus from MESHED. I went to a wastewater treatment facility earlier this year. Do you were you around for that? I you've told me about it since, and you I think you said it smelt bad. Was that no? I it, it didn't smell like it's all barricaded off essentially in the big techie stuff where they're try, they're bringing in all the what they call influent, which is essentially the poo and the pee and all that. And sort that of doesn't stuff. smell bad. It will because it's all covered. Yeah. And and you, you don't really see a whole lot of that going on until you get to the sedimentation room, which is essentially like they have the sediment open, aerated. The sedimentation and, and get, room. And you get to see it. And I remember I was there and I'm like, oh, what's that? It looks like something out of the Matrix, but it was actually like the poo in the water. Lovely. But when I went there, I, I wanted to just see how the whole system worked and how essentially you get waste coming in and then what goes out is water back into deep ocean offsets, essentially meaning it goes back out into the ocean. But something I didn't really think about at the time was how much energy is that whole process using? Mm. And is this whole process of wastewater treatment really that efficient? Is it? Well, Stephen Woodcock from the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, thinks we need to rethink things. The, the major problem, really, is that, this is going to sound slightly critical of the industries, we still don't really know from most sort of, if you view this from most sciences, we really don't actually have a very good handle of what's going on, in the sense that most of the design of a lot of wastewater reactors was developed just before the First World War. We're talking like a 100-year-old technology. And it was developed before there was really any of the modern 
microbiology tools. So they didn't really know why it worked. It was just observed that if you had the system working this way, it usually worked, sometimes didn't, but usually did. Then it kind of got copied by other people because, oh, that one works, so we'll try and build a similar plant. And it was only years later when sort of really quantitative microbiology took off that people were actually able to explain why the technique they'd been using for a few decades by that point actually worked, which is incredible that you design something that works and then you figure out 30, 40 years later why it works. Was it, was it a luck thing or like a guess? Um I guess, think empiricism but... is the, the generous word, the <laughs> idea that you keep trying something and you keep subtly refining it till you get better. I mean, an analogy which a former collaborator of mine often liked is if you look at bridge building. If you look at bridges built 2,000 years ago and bridges built 200 years ago, they're basically the same design. They're generally masonry arches, so stone arches. They're generally of about the same span. They don't sort of like massive jumps. If, you need, if you've got a wide river, you'd put two or three archway spans there but roughly the designs stayed the same because nobody really had the mathematical tools to describe why it stayed up or didn't stay up so nobody could be that radical yeah you might expand it by a little bit and then you might try something different if that falls down nobody ever copies you again and if that stays up then that adds to the bank of knowledge so people can then start copying that design it then got to the stage of okay we don't just need to basically copy what we've seen to work before we know why this works so we can do this well, those days, on paper. I mean, nowadays, there's even more radical designs than that, and absolutely crazy sort of suspension bridges of enormous reach. But you can do that because you computers, to be able to basically crunch through billions, trillions of calculations, we're not at that stage with wastewater. We're still at the stage of, well, we tried this last week and it worked, so let's try it again. We're still not quite at the stage of knowing exactly why certain bacteria grow at the rate they do when in the presence of other ones or in the presence of a particular nutrient or how variable that is. We're still trying to effectively figure out the rules before we can do intelligent design. Is it also, when it comes to wastewater treatment design, if it's not broken, you don't need to fix it? It's kind of that. However, the problem that we've got is that it's, it isn't broken, but it also isn't perfect either. So there is Everybody sees a heck of a lot of scope for improvement in terms of less frequent failures in the developed world. So you don't have to stop them and then restart them, but also being able to scale them down. The reason that they're built big is basically if if you've got a sort of random system, which may or may not fail, if you build it bigger and bigger and bigger, it's much more stable because more things have to basically be unlucky at the same time for it to go down. But that doesn't work in certain countries. don't have the infrastructure for that. So the idea of smaller scale ones would be ideal. Take a place like Indonesia where there's a huge governmental Mm. push for um, the decentralisation of the sanitation system. And a lot of that is actually handing over the power to the community in some sort of ways. And there's obvious potential for problem there at the same time if they're not managed or kind of maintained in the same way. But do you think a system like that would ever translate over here? If it was working well in in somewhere like Indonesia, then yeah, there would be no reason there would be no reason why not. I mean I mean I can't imagine you would dismantle the infrastructure that is here, but I mean obviously the shorter distances that you're piping stuff, the less you're actually paying in terms of actual pumping costs, because that's actually a huge amount of it, just actually paying paying for a pump to actually get this stuff moving. And if you think of even things like, like sort of 
greenhouse gas emissions for actually powering these pumps. There's a heck of a lot of energy usage. So, I mean, I would have thought the ideal system is having these small-scale ones which are sort of loosely connected that if for whatever reason they do fail or whatever else, that you can just sort of pass the problem on to the next unit for the short term till you've restarted yours. Um, so you would have that effectively as, as plan B. First, from a sustainability point of view, the, the ideal would be almost a sort of an in-house system where just sort of the same water goes around the house again and again. I think that's a pipe dream that we're, we're a heck of a long way off. Mm. Um, I mean, not least because it's not really sort of that politically palatable for people to have these things stuck on their own house. If that fails, you don't really want a failing yeah. wastewater reactor kind of in your back garden. <laughs> I can imagine It Do, doesn't do much of property prices. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So then to bring in kind of your area as in the mathematical modeling or the the different variables to bring into that, what's the purpose behind this? A lot of the maths actually behind this is actually developed in economics departments and in sort of in, in business schools because I mean a lot of that is again looking at the variability and for example like stock prices and what factors are going to influence when prices spike, if there's effectively a panic when a thing's going to drop and how you might get early indicators of something shifting being a sign that something's about to spike or go off a cliff. So it's very often looking at almost foreseeing major problems be- before they start. When it comes to wastewater, what are some of those major problems? Well, I say f- fa- failure to remove something that you absolutely need need removed. In the developed world, these systems are... They work, but they're very, very inefficient in the sense that they're, they're just monitored all the time because obviously they want to be close to 100% certain that what they're pumping back out into people's drinking supply is actually safe. So what you want to do is you want to, is you want to make sure that everything which is basically toxic to toxic in the human supply is actually removed from the water before it's put out. Now, these systems are quite fickle and unstable unstable. so what they will do is they will monitor them and then if they do fail a particular thing they'll just obviously stop pumping that back out into the water supply for a while but then you're wasting the time you're wasting the money in there you might have to drain part of it you might have to sift it out stick it into another tank and then restart this is incredibly expensive process and they also rely on a heck of a lot of infrastructure in terms of piping or potentially draining something into a tank and then driving it somewhere else and tipping it in Mm. so it means two things it means that the energy demands in countries like this are sky high somewhere between depending on the estimates somewhere between about five and ten percent of all energy used in the country is used on the infrastructure of making sure that what comes out your tap is safe I mean, the holy, the holy grail of a lot of this is decentralisation, where you could build a small plant that would be for a small community and would sort of stand up and be stable and be predictable and wouldn't need constant expensive monitoring. That was the holy grail kind of when I started in this field 10 years ago. And I would hope we're closer, but we're still, it's still not exactly kind of on the market, in the marketplace now. Stephen Woodcock from the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Nina Copel. See you next week. Thanks.